A week ago Saturday, I spoke at our First Watch Men's Breakfast, and the basic topic was how and why men are to disciple one another. Well, today is actually quite similar in that where we're headed this morning, we're going to talk about how to disciple women, discipleship topics for women, and as today is going to turn out, we're going to have a, a really practical time that's going to end up in a checklist for all of you ladies. It could be used as a godliness checklist for anybody, but, but for the ladies, we'll get specific. It could be a discussion starter for two or three ladies meeting together, and it frankly could be fleshed out into an entire Bible study. And so we'll just call this kind of a how to disciple women checklist, but we're going to get to that in a little while. All of this is part of our endeavor to sharpen our ecclesiology, our, our focus as a church as we go through 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6. And we're calling this Well Done, Good and Faithful Church. We have a responsibility to our community to be a church that is a beacon of light, that is salt, that is filled with truth. Now, so far, we've seen what a faithful church is doing. The faithful church is striving for excellence, understanding the gospel, leading by example, focusing the leadership, sanctifying the individuals, helping the vulnerable. And today, we'll talk about discipling the women. Discipling the women and To receive our instruction on this topic, we'll be in 1 Timothy 5, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 15. Now, last time we saw in verses 3 through 8 and verse 16 that Paul addressed widows in the church, and by extension, anyone in a truly vulnerable situation. We saw that the family and the church, in that order, are to come alongside the vulnerable. And now, beginning in verse 9, Paul continues the discussion of widows, but it takes a turn. It changes directions. And it goes from support to more of a discipleship leaning. And so let's just read these verses together, and then we'll get into it. Verse 9, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having the reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. I want to be up front with you and let you know from my own study that very clearly the majority view on this passage is that all of the passage from verse 3 all the way through verse 16 is one unit, and it all has to do with the financial support of widows in the church which we looked at last time. And the point is made, for example, that younger widows ought not to be supported, except maybe for a brief interim time in kindness, but rather ought to get married. And that's a valid point. But I'm going to take the minority view, and that is that Paul begins a related topic, still related to widows, which are being discussed, but it goes in a different direction because there's much more of a discussion about discipleship and about holiness that there are two enrollments or two lists in the church spoken of in this passage as a whole from verse 3 through verse 16. 
In verses 3 through 8 and verse 16, you have the enrollment of those who are truly widows. And we talked about that last time, which Paul defines as having no other outside family source to help them and showing evidence of genuine salvation, their church members in good standing. And now, beginning in verse 9, he speaks of a different enrollment. The enrollment of widows without reference to their financial situation, without reference to financial support. Now we're talking about a list of those qualified to be specially designated servants in the church, with the implication, of course, being the role of disciple makers to other women. And so now the qualifications are much higher. And of course, it's certainly possible that there were some widows in the church at Ephesus to whom 1 Timothy is written, where, where Timothy was ministering, that maybe there were widows on one list or on the other, and maybe some on both. There might have been some widows without need of financial help, but who were qualified as disciple makers. There may have been some on the list for financial help, but were not qualified as disciple makers, and then some might be on both lists. I'm not just going to ask you to take my word for it. Let me just briefly give you four reasons why we take this as a qualification for discipleship. Four reasons, and we'll, we'll just name these simply. The first one is the compassion reason. The compassion reason says, if verse 9 simply continues a means of support or help, this would potentially mean that you have a widow, say in her 50s, who had no children and is a believer, but is past the age of having children in a new marriage. And it means that the church might be cruel to her because she's not 60 yet. The age requirement would contradict the qualifications in verses 3 through 8, which is simply no other means of support and definitely a believer. Those are the only two qualifications. And what about the widow who was never able to have children? She would actually be the perfect candidate for the church's financial help. But if the qualification of being helped is having brought up children, then this would be cruel. It would be contradictory to the need that she has. So there's the compassion reason. The second one we'll call the scriptural reason. The scriptural reason, Scripture interprets Scripture. And if you made a comparison of the qualifications listed for these precious treasures of the church, the older widows, you would find it remarkably similar to the qualifications for male leadership just back in chapter 3. For example, here she is to be the wife of one husband, literally a one-man woman. Chapter 3, verse 2, an elder is to be, in Greek, a one-woman man. Chapter 3, verse 12, a deacon is to be a one-woman man. Here, the older widow is to have a reputation for good works. What's the elder qualification? Chapter 3, verse 2, he is above reproach. He's thought of well by outsiders. Chapter 3, verse 7, deacon qualifications. He's tested first. Chapter 3, verse 10. We have the qualification of if she has brought up children. Elders in chapter 3, verse 4, are to keep their children submissive. Chapter 3, verse 12, deacons are to manage their children well. Not perfection, but involvement. And then, of course, she is to have shown hospitality. Chapter 3, verse 2, elders are to be hospitable. So the scriptural reason is very clear that they, these are leadership qualifications. I could also give you the historical reason. The historical reason. Late 1st and early 2nd century sources tell us that in the churches there were orders or 
organizations of widows recognized by the church leadership as honored and revered servants in the church. This is just church history. Ignatius and Polycarp wrote of these groups of widows. Numerous other sources recognized them as well based on taking 1 Timothy 5 verses 9 through 15 at face value. They were highly esteemed. They were seen as one of the greatest treasures of the church. And we would agree with that. These widows in many ways served to supplement and bolster the ministry of the shepherds. They did things like helping with baptism of women, visiting the sick, visiting those in prison, discipling younger women, helping younger women with their children, hospitality ministries, even helping place orphans in Christian homes. There were no placing agencies for orphans. Abandoned children usually ended up as slaves, prostitutes, or gladiators in the Roman world. And so it was the, the widows in the church that took these children in and found families for them or, or raised them themselves. That's the historical reason. I'll give you one more. We'll just call it the paragraph reason. The paragraph reason. If this was a continuation of the discussion of verses 3 through 8, we would expect a connecting word of some sort. And or therefore... But verse 9 simply moves to a related but new topic. And in fact, most of your Bibles, if not all of them, likely show verse 9 as beginning a new paragraph. So I take the view that this is a new topic of discussion. It's still related to widows, but moving on to discipleship rather than to support. Now, I said we'd get to a how to disciple women checklist, and we will. But first, we need to look briefly now at these two classes of widows that Paul speaks of, the older widows and the younger widows. And basically, the delineation here isn't about age. It's about ability to bear children. That's all it is. It's not a value judgment. It's just childbearing capability is all this speaks of. First of all, we have the older widows, and there's some descriptors here that she is to be not less than 60 you would be amazed at how much ink has been spilled over the significance of that age. It's not really that complicated. I think the closest we can come is that marriage is less likely at this point and they could could devote themselves to the work of the church without interruption. The age requirement helped ensure that they wouldn't be driven by passion, by sexual desire, and so they wouldn't abandon a thriving ministry. And if you read anything about church history, the most The most effective and thriving churches in all of church history always have older women that are just leading the charge on so many things. She's to be the wife of one husband. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that she had only been married once. It means that she was true and faithful to her spouse until he died. And this could have happened more than once. But it does mean that she had a history of being a devoted wife, pure and chaste in her marriage relationship. And this qualification makes sense to us. This is someone that a young woman would aspire to be like. It means that she's had decades of experience as a a married woman and can utilize the joys of marriage, marriage that she enjoyed as an encouragement to others. It says in verse 10, she has a reputation for good works, that her character was well known as someone who did good, who worked for good, who did wonderful physical, caring things. One of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, and you may be thinking of it right now, is the story of Tabitha, or Dorcas, as she's called in a different language. Acts 9.36, in the city of Joppa, 
Acts 9.36 says, She was full of good works and acts of charity, but Tabitha died. She died, and so those closest to her sent for the Apostle Peter, and ultimately he miraculously raised her from the dead, and this caused the salvation of many who heard of this. But do you remember what was happening around Tabitha's body after she had died? Acts 9.39 says that when Peter arrived, quote, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. While she was with them. What does that mean? It means that she was almost certainly a widow herself. And yet she took it upon herself to care for the basic needs of the other widows in the church at Joppa. And, and Peter raised her from the dead. Now I have a question. If Tabitha had a reputation for being difficult or contentious or a selfish woman, would Peter have come in and just said, well, God's timing is perfect. We'll just leave it as it is. <laughs> there is at least the implication here that he raised her from the dead because the church couldn't get along without her. The church loved her and she was useful. And he didn't just say, well, let's just call it even and we'll be good here. Now, the Apostle Paul, in verse 10, lists examples of the older widow's good works, not just presently, but in the past. If she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. These are things they did throughout the course of their lives, even as younger women. This is a precious older woman that any church would be blessed to have be part of the ministry of discipleship. What about the younger widows? They've been through trial and heartache. Shouldn't they be allowed to devote themselves to the church and be part of a select group of widows helping and discipling others? Paul says, no, it's not time for them yet. And he gives some warnings against this. And so we could look at the younger widows just for a moment. And apparently this was not an unusual situation in Ephesus. There were enough of them that it warranted his comment we don't know exactly why. It may have been young husbands dying from disease or in war. But there were enough young widows in the church that Paul took time to address the issue. Verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Verse 11. They're drawn away from Christ. Verse 12. They're abandoning their former faith. Now, there's a couple of details we have to understand here. Former faith, verse 12, is more commonly translated their first faith. In fact, some translate the word faith as pledge or vow. But what's the best way to view this? Well, there's several possibilities put forward here as to what the young widow's former faith or first faith or former vow was. Some feel that it was a commitment or a vow to remain unmarried and to serve the Lord in the church. That would be the translation pledge. This is pretty unlikely though because there's no evidence of such a vow. And in verse 14, Paul commands the younger widows to marry, to remarry. Another possibility is that this is speaking of her vows to her first husband who is now dead that she's abandoning these vows by looking to remarry. Again, if it were Christian dogma that your vows, if it were Christian dogma that your vows to your spouse extend uh, beyond even death, 
then Paul wouldn't command younger widows to remarry. So what is this? Really, the only possibility that makes sense is this is speaking of the faith, her faith in Christ as a regenerate believer. The Greek word for faith here in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, every single time, it means personal faith in Christ. It has this meaning, frankly, almost every other time it's used in the New Testament. So, how do we take this apart? Because the desire to marry is not in and of itself wrong. Paul prescribed it in verse 14. So, what situation of a desire to marry could lead a young widow away from Christ, away from living the faith that she had at least one time expressed or professed? The only situation logically in which a desire to marry, including the accompanying sexual desire that she may have had, because she's been married before, and that this is also associated with abandoning her faith, showing that she was never a believer in Christ, or at best that she's going down the path of destruction leading to the discipline of the Lord. The only situation that makes sense here is rushing into the first opportunity to marry and marrying an unbeliever. She was unable to wait on the Lord and remain true to Christ Maybe even just to be provided for financially. This is very important because culturally speaking, a woman was expected to take the faith of her husband. And so by marrying an unbeliever, a pagan idol worshiper, she would be seen as leaving her faith in Christ. Paul gives this admonition in 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes Only in the Lord. What does that mean? You marry a believer. But Paul continues in verse 13, Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Besides that, what's he speaking of? That besides the trials and temptations associated with young widowhood, the, the tragedy She also is perhaps struggling with desires and a wish to be married and facing the temptations that Paul lists here. And so he says, this isn't time to add them to the roster of disciple-making widows in the church. There's too much risk with this for both them and for others. And so, verse 14, they should marry, bear children, manage their households. This should be construed as finding a Christian husband, settling down, having children, or having more children. A very good principle here, frankly, for both men and women, but we'll apply it primarily to the women. As a younger woman, meaning scripturally that there's still childbearing and child rearing and, and raising children, the best and godliest thing you can do is not so much to try to teach others, but rather just to set an example and just to do those things. The best thing is to set an example doing those things, and then in later years you can instruct from the position of, I've done this. If you're a mother of a one-year-old trying to instruct the mother of a six-month-old, that doesn't carry as much weight as the mother who's raised six kids already saying, here's what you ought to do. But now, after the discussion of older widows and younger widows, now we can glean a checklist of godliness for women. We can put it all together, a discipleship topic starter, Because embedded in this discussion is a terrific list 
And we'll do 12 discipleship topics. How to disciple women checklist. And this is something maybe that, to keep with you because it's a great discussion starter. It may be a mentor to a mentoree. It may be two young ladies deciding to work through this list, hold one another accountable to cleanse their minds and their actions through these filters. However you want to do this. Now, I should note before we get to this checklist that there's an assumption inherent here, both to believing men and women, and that assumption is that we're not to live our Christian lives in isolation. We don't live our lives in isolation. The, the pattern of Scripture is very clear that you're to be involved in one another's lives, not to the extent of being a distraction, but to be in a help. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So we are to be together. That's an assumption inherent here. So here we go on how to disciple, a how to disciple checklist, and we can extract 12 on this list from this passage. And we'll just hit them all fairly quickly. Number one, bring up children. Bring up children. Before, about 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, no preacher would have thought they needed to preach this. But beginning about that time, it became vogue, it became in style to begin to wait and wait and wait and wait to have children. He says, bring up children. The older widows are an example and they're worthy of being disciple makers because they've brought up children. They've been there. They've done that. Now, I want to be clear about this. This doesn't just carte blanche exclude women who are unable to have children at all. But it's a reasonable qualification because it provides the experience necessary to disciple others. Maybe even just to help them out in the home on occasion. This word that Paul uses here to say that the older women, older widows have brought up children, it doesn't just mean that they gave birth. It's a word that means that they nourished the children. To rear the children in a godly home to follow the Lord, there was spiritual nourishment and this would most clearly include what was a common occurrence in the early church, and that was the care of orphans, which logically might go first to the women who had been unable to bear children physically. Adoption in the early church was not complex. Somebody would bring a child that had been abandoned to church and say, we need a home for this family. And the couple that had not been able to have children would say, we'll take him. And they, off they would go. That was it. They cared for orphans. And so brought up children doesn't just mean she gave birth. There are plenty of mothers who give birth, but they're terrible mothers. She nourished them. She proactively raised them in a godly home with the hope that they would eventually come to saving faith to follow Christ. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers is a plural word and it can be used simply to speak of parents. So what does this mean for a mother? I won't have you turn there just because we don't have a lot of time. But we can extract from the book of Proverbs two basic principles about being a mother. There's just two. And we can boil this down. First of all, a mother is a teacher. A mother is a teacher. Proverbs 1.8 Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's what? teaching. Proverbs 6.20, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. And what are you teaching them? 
Uh, easier question, what are you not teaching them? You teach them everything. You're an instructor in hygiene, ethics, biblical morality, manners, honoring their father, theology, anything and everything in between. They're teachers. And the second basic principle about being a mother is a mother is a disciplinarian. A mother is a disciplinarian, not the sole disciplinarian. Your kids ought to know that you want to be disciplined by mom because if that doesn't work, you should be scared to death of dad. That's the way it ought to be. But when does the role of disciplinarian happen? This is very simple. Listen carefully. The role of disciplinarian happens when the child rejects the mother's role as teacher. That's it. When the child doesn't do what the teacher, mom, says. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but the child left to himself brings shame to his mother. What does that mean? It means that the mother didn't do her part in discipline. She always gave the child his way. She didn't drop the hammer down when necessary. And ultimately, the child shames her. Not in the category of a child who sins continually despite the mother's instruction and discipline, but the child who sins continually because the mother didn't discipline. I know you know this, but I think it's important to remind you that scripturally speaking, mothers, you are not your child's friend. You're not their friend. That comes later in life. You pray for that. You are his mother. You teach and you insist that your instruction is followed and then you discipline appropriate punishment when teaching isn't followed. In fact, did you notice in the verse I just read, Proverbs 29, 15, that these two duties of mothers are listed together? Reproof, that's teaching, and the rod, discipline. That's the role of a mother. So bring up children. There's a second thing we can put on our list. Be hospitable. Be hospitable. The Greek here has the idea of welcoming strangers, being kind to those you don't know. And certainly includes the idea maybe of of having welcomed strangers into her home. In the first century world, when Christians are away from home, they were depending on other believers to put them up. But to restrict being hospitable only to that definition of having somebody in your home, it's way too narrow. That's, that's reading our culture backwards into the scriptures. In the context of the church, very practically speaking, this is pretty much the same thing as the expected hospitality of an elder. 1 Timothy 3, the idea is having a concern for strangers. And who is the ultimate stranger to the church? It's the one who doesn't know Christ, the lost. That we're to have a concern, we're to be hospitable to the lost. And certainly also a care and concern for those newer in the body of Christ. Every time we have a guest and I get to speak to our guest, I always ask them two questions. Did you feel well fed today and did you feel loved and welcomed? Because we never want to be inhospitable. Maybe you visited a church, I pray it's not this one, but maybe you visited a church where you walk in and you feel like you're being scrutinized, like you just walked into someplace you don't belong. Nobody says hello. They all just sit back and stare at you. And you offer your hand and they kind of go, well, okay. And you're, boy, this is welcoming. No, we're hospitable. That's being a welcoming influence. One who helps a newer attendee get inculcated and assimilated into the body of Christ. Here in our little building, which we're getting ready to abandon in, in a couple of months. One of the things I love is that 
when you are doing your job properly, and you ladies, you're leading the charge on this, it takes 20 minutes to walk from our front door to the sanctuary. And that's the way it ought to be. A guest come crawling in here, man, I don't know if I want to be loved at that level anymore. <laughs> it's the way it ought to be. Be hospitable. I want to make this as practical as I can. Because why have that command? You would say, well, everybody agrees on this. They don't. This is a protection against being so self-focused that you basically let others do all the caring in the ministries of compassion and welcoming. And here's what I hear sometimes as a pastor, and, and I would encourage you to take this to heart. Someone says, but I'm, I'm really an introvert or I'm shy. I understand those designations, but the reality is, is that we don't find them in Scripture. Certainly, some are more outgoing than others, but care for others those that you don't know, that's not a personality trait. That's a command of Scripture. And in fact, so-called shyness is just a nice way of redefining the sin of prideful fear of man into a personality trait. And for example, when you address an eight-year-old child and he stares at you like you're an alien, and when the parent says he's just shy, that's not the truth. The truth is he hasn't been taught to greet someone and he hasn't been disciplined when he refuses to do so. Now, that care of strangers, that love for those who need love might be expressed in very different ways by different people, but it is the hallmark of a godly woman. It is the hallmark of a godly woman. It's the third thing we could add to our list here. Do humble things. Do humble things. The older widow has a reputation that throughout her life, verse 10, she has washed the feet of the saints. She's washed the feet of the saints. Now, we might jump immediately, maybe a little bit too quickly, to the metaphorical use of this idea of doing menial tasks. And that may be part of the idea here that we should, before we ever jump to our time, we always have to go back to their time. In the first century, ancient Near East, people walked everywhere in sandals. And they got their feet dusty and muddy. And this was to wash the feet was seen as the duty of slaves. But this godly saint in welcoming others into her home, she may well have done them the honor of washing their feet herself. A moving gesture of caring for others. But it does, of course, have a broader sense referring to a, a humble servant's heart. She isn't exalting herself. What's the lesson here? It's very simple. Do what is the lowest. Do what is the least. Do what is the dirtiest. And the sense of satisfaction you have in pleasing the Lord, that'll be rewarded by by God. Do the least. Don't be above anything in the church. Don't be above anything. I've told this story before, but a great illustration is worth repeating. Years ago, in a little church plant that we were a part of, there was a a, a man who was a professional, and he, he was a... You know, very, very smart man. And he came in and kept saying, I want to do things. I want to serve in the church. I want to serve in the church. We're a little church plant. We're all cleaning up before and after. And, and I was pushing a broom while he's following me around saying, I want to do anything. I want to do anything. So I said, great, you can finish this. And I handed him the broom and he literally went, whoa, hang on. That's not what I was talking about. All right. Do what is humble. Do what is humble. When an older woman has a reputation of steering clear of the lower tasks in life, of not being a hard worker, she can't set an example to the younger generation. She can't do it. 
Here's a fourth thing we could add to our discipleship list. Help those in crisis. Help those in crisis. The older widow has a reputation, verse 10, of having cared for the afflicted. The afflicted speaks of a crisis situation. It literally means to be squeezed or or be pressed upon or in trouble. She has been the woman that others can count on when trouble hits. There is at some level, she's there. She provides physical help or emotional encouragement or spiritual encouragement. These are the women who make the church of Jesus Christ shine in glorious reputation. These are the women that give the church the reputation that Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When the ladies of the church are like a standing army or a reserve unit ready for trouble, the aroma of the church is sweet and righteous and good. The church at Galatia had this reputation as they did before many of them went sideways theologically and Paul reminded them of how he helped him when how they helped him when he was in trouble when he was afflicted. He said in Galatians 4 beginning in verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. In other words, you treated me like an angel, or better yet, like Christ. He said, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. I don't know for sure, sure, but I'll bet a nickel it was the women of the church leading that charge. A church filled with women like this is glorious, and it's honoring to the Lord. And by the way, it's a very satisfying way to live your life in the church. Here's a fifth thing we could add to the list. Be dependable. Be dependable. At the end of verse 10, the older widow has in her lifetime been an example and, quote, has devoted herself to every good work. This isn't a specific task. This is now a character trait. She's devoted herself with energy. In fact, it's a word that can mean to follow after someone. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Same word. In other words, you can count on her. She follows well. Her husband can count on her to be his helper, to be available to him, to be all in with their marriage, to submit to him, especially in critical moments when dissent is the least helpful. Her children could count on her to be consistent in the home. She was there when they needed her, caring for them in every possible way, Her sisters in Christ could count on her to be loving, kind, helpful, encouraging, gracious. Her church could count on her to be enthusiastic about the various things for which she's responsible. And all around her could count on her to be humble and even teachable and correctable with a tender spirit and a heart for Christ. This is a grand goal to have as a Christian, to be dependable, that that's your reputation of being someone that's predictably reliable and that those around you know that you'll do those things which are pleasing to the Lord. We could add another to the discipleship list. We'll call this one, fill your time wisely. Fill your time wisely. Paul expressed his concern about the younger widows that they, in verse 13, learn to be idlers going about from house to house. This is a picture of a young woman just roving around, wandering into 
the homes of other women, just wasting time, or worse than that, wasting others' time. You've all seen this. If you've ever been to lunch during a week, you see a, a group of young women out to lunch together, drinking and laughing way too loudly and talking about absolutely nothing of value whatsoever talking about their husbands venomously and jokingly, talking about the latest fads and workouts, where they're going to shop all afternoon, what vacations they're going on, verbally shredding anyone who dared not to come to the lunch. And all of them have pawned their children off on someone else to deal with. That's our culture's equivalent of the time-wasting young woman who's busy at nothing of value or, or with eternal significance. We're reminded of Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. What are you doing with your time? What are you talking about with your time? It's not unreasonable to say that the Christian woman's life ought to look significantly different than the woman of the world. You see that God has commanded you to walk wisely. You see that evil is all around you, so you use your time well as a result. Every moment counts. Now I hear both men and women speaking of how busy they are. We're all busy for the most part. That's the culture we live in. So this is a useful exercise, but I'm going to tailor this down to younger women who are still married and still raising children. I've done this for men in the past, but it's a simple three-step process. Step one Write down your top priorities from Scripture. Write down your top priorities from Scripture. Now, I'm going to give you a little hint. If you will simply copy Titus 2, 4, and 5, you're making that list. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be reviled. It's very simple. If you're a Christian young woman, you yearn to obey those things. If you don't yearn to obey them, then you're not a believer. It's very simple. You'll rationalize why that's not for you. Step one, write down your top priorities. Step two, write down how you are to meet these priorities. First, husbands, then children, personal sanctification, self-controlled and pure, and then your home. How are you going to meet them? You can picture it as columns. You have these priorities listed with how to meet them below. And step three, plug those things into your calendar and your schedule and voila, Time is filled wisely. It's not complicated. There's a seventh thing we could add to this list of sanctifying women. Sanctify your speech. Sanctify your speech. Another one of Paul's concerns is that the sinful speech habits of the idle young widows was getting out of hand. He says that they're not only idlers, but gossips. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, and it basically means to babble on about others. Speaks of useless, foolish, hurtful talk. In other words, the type of talk that ungodly women of the world think is normal. That's normal. Gossiping becomes an addiction of sorts. It feels great in the moment to be a purveyor of semi-truthful information. It provides a feeling and you get addicted to it at some level. There's a Christian myth I've heard numbers of times that says, well, if it's true, then it's not gossip. Actually, slander is a form of sinful talk about others that isn't true. Gossip is, by definition, more likely to be something that is true. 
but it's hurtful for you to speak of. It's giving information to others that wasn't your place to give. It's, it's couching gossip in terms of a prayer request. That's the classic uh, church way we get around gossip. It is habitually speaking of others in a way that isn't helpful to them. It's not necessary. We all have to be more careful with this. And I want to give you two simple, positive ways to be more careful. They're very simple. The first one is talk less and listen more. Talk less and listen more. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Listen, if you get a cramp in your jaw, you're talking too much. If you're having a massage and say, hang on a minute, I'm going to continue here. You know what the book of Proverbs says about listening? 16 times. Listen. Just listen. Proverbs 18, 13 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Talk less and listen more. Don't be the person that others see coming and they steer the other direction because they know you're going to hold them there for 55 minutes talking about nothing. And second positive thing, meditate on what you should say. Meditate on what you should say. How often do we start a conversation with somebody before our brain gets kicked in? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk, that's that which corrupts someone's view of another. Rather, we talk about those things that are good for building up. It fits the occasion. It's a gracious example to the listener. You know what that means? That means a little planning. That means saying there are two important, gracious, good, and godly things I would like to say to this person. Colossians 4, 6, you're familiar with this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I've preached on gossip a lot. I've been around the block a few times. My experience in the church, though, has been that just hearing a sermon might prick the conscience, but doesn't always lead to genuine change. If you want genuine change, you have to change your heart. Matthew 12, 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? Speaks. So take those verses. Ephesians 4, 29. Colossians 4, 6. Eat them, drink them, live them, write them repeatedly, recite them, study them, apply them. And if I could say to all of you young ladies, if you get ahead of the game on the godly use of your tongue, the godly use of your mouth, you will you will be noticed and you will be someone that others come to asking for spiritual instruction because they see the difference. But Paul has a greater concern. This can get even worse than just gossip. Number eight, we'll call this one, be a joy, not a troublemaker. Be a joy, not a troublemaker. You ever have that conversation with someone that in 30 seconds they just sucked all the happiness out of your soul and you don't even know how they did it? be a joy, not a troublemaker. Paul's concern is they're gossips and busybodies. Busybodies. They're paying too close of attention to things not their business. They're being meddlesome. They're being curious to a sinful degree. Now, yes, we ought to help one another. And yes, certainly at a, at a personal level, but that's something that's earned and comes about in a slow development of relationship. Someone asked me a question once. I'd take today to answer it. What's the difference between a busybody and a disciple maker? 
Because they're both saying personal things. A disciple maker says, I'd like to develop a relationship with you until we trust one another. Or may I take a brief opportunity to speak into your life. Or I'd like to be a help to you and believe that we have the type of relationship that says I can do that. A busybody offers unasked for advice continually to everyone around her and may even redefine this as discipleship. Instead, be a disciple maker, be judicious, have a relationship built on trust. There's another flavor of busybody we might call this one the overly curious. The overly curious, her life verse is inquiring minds want to know. I don't think that's in the Bible, but that's the verse that comes out. It's those who salivate at the thought of information. Accuracy and context don't matter. Just the act of receiving information causes an emotional burst of happiness. But it's never enough. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon, that's the grave, are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of man. In other words, curiosity is never satisfied. What is curiosity? It's the outworking of the sin of being a busybody because you think you'll get some sort of satisfaction. But it's addictive in a sinful sense. You, you never are satisfied. You always have to have more. Now, we can get to the flip side of this, the positive side. Number nine, we'll call this be a spreader of truth. Be a spreader of truth. Paul ends his concern for the younger widows at the end of verse 13, saying that they are saying what they should not. This is more than just gossip. This is more than just being a busybody. This is much more serious. In the context of the Ephesian church, there were false teachers there. Chapter 1 says they're foolish. Chapter 6 says they're empty. Chapter 1 and 4 and 6 says they're ignorant. 2 Timothy 3.6 says that the false teachers in the church were targeting vulnerable women as well. They're burdening them with sins and they're led astray by various passions. So this isn't just talking about wasting time with foolish talk. Talking about nothing. This is spreading new sensationalist teaching. That's the latest fad. That's the latest thing. And this gets spread like wildfire throughout the church. And this happens in the church today. The latest fad book or podcast or so-called influencer comes out, which is erroneous at best and heretical at worst. And generally speaking, especially if this material appeals to the emotions and to the heart and to a sentimentalist view of, of the Christian faith in which the primary task of Jesus is to make you feel wonderful, the primary sales targets of these products are women. And statistics bear this out. And then when trouble starts, it starts because the sharing begins at times with no discernment or care for what's actually true. When one woman gets enamored with something that's off or sentimental and it spreads like wildfire. See also the sales statistics for Jesus Calling or for Gentle and Lowly. These have been primarily bought up by women in the church and it's caused so much trouble. Jesus Calling, that book caused so much trouble I spent 15 weeks preaching about it. Instead, be a spreader of truth. Ephesians 4.25, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. 
Set an example by speaking truth. When was the last time you were in a conversation with somebody and said, you know, Psalm 100 means so much to me. Could I read that to you? When was the last time you said, what are you going through? Let me pray for three things right now. When was the last time you planned to say, I, in, my, in my quiet time this morning, this is what I learned from the Lord. Could I share that with you? Speak truth to one another. And by the way, that becomes absolutely contagious. When the church is filled with women speaking truth to one another, that is absolutely a delight to the Lord. Here's the 10th thing we could put on the list. Now, I won't belabor this one. It's fairly obvious. Love your husbands. Love your husbands. Paul tells the younger widows in verse 14 how to minimize all those sin problems. Solve them all. Get married. Get married. When a young woman who is not married tells me, I'm just concerned about filling my life with things. Fill your life with a husband. That'll fill your life. And when you're carrying a baby in one arm and a diaper bag in the other, you go, all right, problem solved. I'm, I'm okay now. You throw yourself into being a wife. Make it your primary joy and delight. Study being a wife. Challenge yourself to improve and to grow. Yay, even ask your husband how you might grow. You might be surprised to learn something new because we're not that great at communicators as men. So if you ask the question, maybe they'll help. And listen, it is absolutely rock solid. It is absolutely take this to the bank that the most joyful, the most content married Christian women are the ones who have really decided to aggressively pursue their marriages. They're content. Why? Because they're in the, in the center of God's will. And that's the only place of true contentment. Why is this the pinnacle of joy for the married woman? Because you're living in the sweet spot of the center of God's will. Your marriage is not something that's part of your life. God has created you to be your husband's helper. It's the first and foremost role that you have. Yes, even over and above being a mother, it is sinful to make being a mother more important than being a wife. You're a helper. Speaking of helping, we could do an 11th on the list, manage your household. Manage your household. Verse 14, he says, manage their households. This is a terrifically powerful word in Greek. It literally means to be the despot, the complete ruler over the home, not over the husband, but over the home. To aggressively treat your home like you're running a Fortune 500 company. That's how it ought to be. If you read Proverbs 31, the excellent wife is a manager. She works at it. And what's the result? Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. You manage your household. You create the warmth. You create the joy. You create the delicious aromas, the cleanliness, the organization, the togetherness of family that makes your home precious and special. You do that. And one more on the list, and this is really obvious, and so I won't belabor it at all. Be a worthy example. Be a worthy example. Paul says he wants the young widows to marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, as some have already strayed after Satan. Satan will use others to slander the Christian faith, that those Christians are just troublemakers, or worse, 
this Christian woman doesn't seem any different than any other woman I know. So be a woman that others will emulate. Why do all this? Why go through that whole list of 12 discipleship topics? Well, very simply because you are a child of the living God through Christ. And this is what Christ has commanded. And if Christ commands it, if you love Christ, you obey His what? Commands. It's that simple. And when you obey this, you help create a church that is a pleasing aroma to Christ. And when we're a pleasing aroma to Christ, then He will use us and people will get saved. You mean me being a godly wife and godly mother and doing what Titus 2, 4, and 5 is going to have eternal implications? Absolutely. Absolutely. We can't trace that. But somebody in heaven will be able to. You see, I came to faith in Christ because I came to Grace Bible Church. I came to Grace Bible Church because this woman that was out here in the community, I saw her in the grocery store and she was being so sweet and kind with her children. She was disciplining them, but teaching them as well. And and I saw that and I thought, boy, I would have smacked them across the store, but she didn't do that. She was kind with them. And then I saw her and she stopped for a moment because her cell phone rang and she said, hi, sweetie. Yes, I'd be happy to do that for you. And I knew that she had something I've never seen before. And I went up to her and I said, what, how, how did you, why do you do that? And she said, well, because I'm a Christian. Well, how do I find out about this? Well, come to Grace Bible Church and you can learn. The little things you're faithful to do will have eternal implications. You mean the lasagna I made led somebody to faith in Christ? I'll bet it did somehow. <laughs> because God is faithful and his word never returns void. And if you obey it, it will come back to bless you. And more importantly, it'll come back to glorify Christ. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want. Let's pray together and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the word of God. Thankful so much for the absolute clarity. It's so clear. You don't leave us guessing about anything. And while today we have been focused on the women of the church, these delightful women that you have given to the church and specifically the widows and more, more broadly all the women who are seeking Christ-likeness and many other occasions we speak to the men as well. Oh Lord, our desire is to be a faithful church, humbled before you, to live in the manner worthy of the gospel, to live in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called to forsake the world. It has nothing to teach us. The world has nothing to offer us except heartache and pain. But to look to Christ, to set our affections on Him, to obey Him, and to enjoy the fruit of that obedience. Lord, now as we turn fully and foremost to the cross of Christ, I pray that our, our hearts would be drawn to the memory that we can read about in the Gospels of our dear Savior bleeding and dying for us to make us new creations in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.